You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Maybe if Bella Abzug didn't hate Richard Nixon so much, maybe if a South Carolina delegate to this constitutional convention didn't fear the Spanish fleet so much, maybe if one word had been changed in the document, and maybe... If a Maltese or Italian official didn't betray us in the 1980s, maybe we might not be bombing Libya right now. Nineteen seventy-three, and the Congress smug with Nixon's declining approval rating, eager to take advantage of their congressional powers, angry that Congress had been misled in the Gulf of Tompkin measure with another president, and perhaps with some of Nixon's moves as well in Vietnam. They sought to rein in the new imperial president. They passed the War Powers Act. It required that the president notify the Congress between forty-eight hours of the use of American military forces and, in 60 days, submit the action to approval. Nixon, of course, didn't like that measure, and it was passed over his veto, but not without a struggle. Liberals looked at the law and didn't like it. They thought it might be too generous. Here you are giving the president 60 days, the first decision made by the president and not by Congress. 60 days to use American forces, and then they'll be in some faraway land, and what is the Congress to do? Those were real concerns. And among these uh, new liberals were New York Congresswoman Bella Abzug and Liz Holtzman, who originally voted no when the measure was first voted on. When it came time to the override vote, Speaker Carl Albert needed all the votes he could get, and he went to these two New York liberal Congresswoman, we know you have reservations, but this is a chance to deal the president, Nixon, all of our enemy in the Democratic Party, a big blow to weaken the president. Abzo couldn't resist. She hated Nixon viscerally and once even cursed the president in his presence face to face. Politics here triumphs over policy considerations. It weakened Nixon to be sure. But President Nixon in 1973 was already weak, and it would not be long before the law no longer applied to him, and he was no longer president. Gerald Ford invoked the notice provisions in the War Powers Act when he ordered an attack and boarding of a Cambodian vessel, which had attacked a Navy ship. Reagan sent troops to Lebanon, notified Congress. President Bush sent half a million troops to Kuwait and later sent troops to Somalia. Clinton used force in Yugoslavia. While these actions occurred, presidents held the War Power Act in some kind of legal limbo, enjoying its provisions, especially the quick notice and 60-day provision, but holding the act in somewhat of 
a legal reserve. They could challenge, because it might, as many legal scholars suggest, be in violation of the separation of powers. Constitution is very clear about the separation of what each branch can do, the president, the Congress, and the judiciary. But here, it's a little strange. And in the War Powers Act, what you really have is a little bit of congressional micromanage on the commander-in-chief, allowing Congress to pull troops out if they want and go beyond the prescribed role that they have, the power of the purse. But maybe it's a little constitutional switcheroo carefully considered with modern-day events. The president stole the other power to declare war. So, perhaps the Congress of 73 thought, will steal his power to make the war. Indeed, Congress hasn't been in the war-declaring business for some time, since 1941, when it declared war on Japan, and in response to them declaring war on us, declared war on Germany. They approved, or at least... Some of the Vietnam actions that Johnson and Nixon took. They approved the first Gulf War and the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. These weren't declaration of wars, though, as prescribed by the Constitution. They were congressional approval of the presidential action. Harry S. Truman never gave the Congress a chance at approving his action in Korea. He never even called it a war. Before that, though, From the War of 1812 to World War II, Congress declared wars. In fact, it could be said that two wars in our history, 1812 and the Spanish-American War, were pushed not by some imperial president, but more by rabid congressmen. Pushed on reticent, if not reluctant, presidents. It started with an oversight. A bit of sloppiness, perhaps. Something missing. The well-thought-out Virginia plan, which was the model for the Constitution that Virginians Madison, Edmund Randolph, and George Washington had agreed on ahead of time before getting to the Convention of Philadelphia and hoped would frame the agenda for the entire meeting. It did with a few bumps in the road. But Edmund Randolph introduced the Virginia plan first thing at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. That plan included a phrase that Congress would be in charge of using force to force a member of the Union to comply if it rebelled or something like that, but otherwise defaulted to the Articles of Confederation powers, which said that the U.S. in Congress assembled That's all it was. There wasn't a president to speak of. There was a president of Congress, but not of the United States at that time. It would determine peace and war. That's what the Articles of Confederation said. Nine states, however, must agree to that war. And the officers would be appointed by their own states. Very difficult way to conduct a war, as you can imagine. Edmund Randolph, who had introduced this Virginia plan, realized there was a gaping hole. There was no provision for an emergency, for a foreign invasion. After some discussion, it was decided that they would add to the Constitution the ability of Congress to, quote, make war. But Charles Pickney had a problem with that. The delegate from South Carolina felt that a group of men such as the House of Representatives couldn't run a war in an emergency, such as a large Indian invasion, 
an invasion from one of the many foreign fleets operating, all of which were larger than anything the Americans had, the British fleet, the Spanish fleet, the French fleet. You had Spanish nations on the border of Georgia. You had English forts on the border of various American states. And the French were always threatening some amount of influence in the new nation. What if there was an emergency? He suggested that at least perhaps give it to the Senate. This group of elder statesmen may be able to run a war better. Pierce Butler disagreed. He thought that even the Senate would be just as incapable to run a war as the House would be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It then went to the Committee of Detail, which decided... 742 against one abstention to go with the phrase declare war, that Congress could declare war. That would leave the president as commander in chief to fight the war that Congress declared. Roger Sherman of Connecticut thought that declare was not the same as make, and that would make the Congress weaker. Yet a motion to remove the president from the commander in chief role. Once the phrase declare was added to Congress's role, uh, failed. In those votes, two things weighed heavily on these delegates' minds. One was the incapability of the Continental Congress to really run the Revolutionary War and to provide all the supplies that the Army needed and supply the leadership that the Army needed without engaging in political squabbles. And the other was the aforementioned threat of a foreign invasion. Sherman, though, was probably right. Despite trying to wrestle control from him, it was Abraham Lincoln, and not Congress, who ran the war effort during the Civil War. Just as President Reagan, not Speaker Tip O'Neill, sent scores of aircraft to punish Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 1986, after he brazenly supported terrorists who bombed the Rome and Vienna airports in that year, and after it was found that Libyan agents were involved, later tried and convicted by a German court of having responsibility in a Berlin discotheque bombing that killed Americans. President Reagan would inform the Speaker of the House, but it was Reagan, acting as Commander-in-Chief, as per the Constitution, Government buildings were targeted, military targets were part of the bombing, but there was no doubt in 1986 that the target was the leader of the nation, Gaddafi himself. 
The mission would include U.S. and British airplanes, but the nations of France, Italy, and Spain all denied. the U.S. use of their airspace. Someone, and this is controversial, it was either the Prime Minister of Malta or an Italian official with Libyan ties or someone else, warned Gaddafi about the impending attack and he was not there when the bomb hit his compound. He was never killed in the assault on his country. But the incident buoyed the U.S. after Vietnam and improved the image of President Reagan and the toughness of the United States. Eventually, Gaddafi would express his desire to be an ally of the United States during George W. Bush administration, and relations would be reestablished in 2008 for what appears to have been a short time. That was Operation El Dorado Canyon. Now, in Operation Odyssey Dawn, there is a more international flair. Belgian, Danish, Italian, Spanish, and French airplanes, along with the U.S., Canada, and Britain, are participating. Aircraft shelters, government buildings, military targets are part of the bombing. This time, Gaddafi is least not ostensibly a target of the operation, though At least one general said it would not be a terrible thing if he was hit. The operation is now going to apparently start targeting Gaddafi's troops as well. The idea behind the operation is to reduce Gaddafi's ability to attack his own people. And by doing so, to support the rebellion in his country, though that's not a stated goal. It is supported by the UN and at least initially had support in the Arab League, though when the bombing actually happened, they didn't agree with the scope. In this operation, President Obama assures us that the U.S. will move to the background, but right now the U.S. Navy and Air Force is leading the fight. It is our tomahawks hitting government buildings. How far we've come, how far we've come from a mere provision in the Constitution— that allows the president to take over in an emergency. In fact, it's not a provision, but the lack thereof. It's two provisions that pass in the night. One saying that Congress has the ability to start a war, and the other saying the president can, in effect, finish and make that war. How far we've come when American firepower is being used thousands of miles away to protect an unpopular arguably a tyrant, from killing his own people, but with a scant connection to the security of the United States and certainly not to protect us from invasion. How far we've come, it seems. There are naval ships on the shores of Tripoli, except that our ships were also on that same shore in 1803. Hence the marine song that goes from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. The halls of Montezuma, of course, refers to the Mexican War. The shores of Tripoli refers to Thomas Jefferson's effort to combat the Barbary pirates, especially the recalcitrant Tripoli. Actually, the war was a bit of a budget saver. The pirates charged nations all over the world a tribute so that they would not attack their shipping. This is important because 
most nations of the world were getting their surplus income from trade. France paid, England paid, but once we were separated from England, the pirates, very smart business people, said, sorry, new nation, new vig. You're not covered by Britain anymore. We sent representatives over and tried to work out a deal. We did work out a deal with Algeria, different nation, but the Barbaries asked for something like $660,000. Big chunk of the federal budget. Might have been a third of the budget at the time they asked for it. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson suggested that uh, we reject any kind of tribute. But tributes were paid in some form by the Confederation Congress and then by Presidents Washington and Adams and their administrations. When he became president, Thomas Jefferson tried to work out a reasonable deal. He couldn't get it, and he sent the Navy ships and Marines to Tripoli to end the piracy. The battles went back and forth between 1803 and 1804 as our small navy, almost the entire fleet, was sent far, far away. We sank many pirate vessels, but they captured one of our navy ships, the Philadelphia, and its crew. We later were able to reboard the ship and burn the ship so they could not be used against us. Trying to attack Tripoli directly was difficult, and we were rebelled after a couple of attempts. But then, some Marines, helped by a large mercenary force of Algerian, Greek, Egyptians, attacked the port of Dema, a different Barbary uh, city, and captured the city, flew the American flag over the port. To relieve this port city, the Barbers were forced to work out a deal. Strike a blow for American pride. The Marines, the Navy, had been successful in a foreign land. The early American nation had stood up to pirates that larger nations had given into. Jefferson didn't exactly get approval to send those ships. He did inform Congress afterwards, and the action was popular enough that no one would disapprove. Communication wouldn't allow him to act as a commander-in-chief, micromanaging every action. But he did choose the personnel to go there. It's an extraordinary action for the young nation. It was our first foreign war. Yet, it was really a small force sent. It was a small war. There were a number of paid mercenaries doing the fighting. And it didn't involve the whole country. When another Southern former governor was elected, he, like Jefferson, wasn't entering office being known for his military prowess or his ability to use a sword. Still, he would seek to compel a foreign nation far away to agree with American policy using American armed force. Yet it wasn't piracy that William Jefferson Clinton was concerned with. It was innocence being killed in the faraway province of Kosovo, arguably not yet its own country, part of Yugoslavia. But Yugoslavia was fractured, and to the extent it had a government, it was dominated by the Serbs. 
Yugoslavia was a hotspot in an otherwise peaceful world with only one superpower remaining, a superpower that had reduced at least the rate of increase of its military spending under Clinton. When the Kosovo Liberation Army rebelled to get its independent state of its own, retaliation from the federal Yugoslav army dominated by the Serbs was swift. The U.S. tried several times to get peace talks. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The Serbs would not allow the Kosovo to separate and walked out of negotiations. Then came battles and a civilian massacre. One murder of 60 civilians triggered Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State under Clinton, to say, this is not an internal matter of the federal Yugoslav Republic. Still, the United States did not immediately act. Negotiation was tried, a short-lived Yeltsin Agreement with Slobodan Milosevic, leader of Serbia, was held. A short-lived Macedonian negotiated ceasefire until by December 1998, all-out war had broken out in Kosovo. The KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, took over various towns in the south, and the Yugoslav army entered Kosovo and attempted to take back everything by force. By 1999, NATO ordered the Yugoslav forces to leave Kosovo. When they would not, NATO began bombing to push Serbia out of Kosovo. They bombed military targets in Belgrade, Serbia, but also bombed what were called dual-use targets, military jargon. That meant things that could be used by the military, but also would be used naturally by civilians, such as bridges. Bridges are going to get your army cross a river, but they're also used by civilian telecommunication centers. You're going to knock out the various phone systems. Well, military uses that, so do civilians. When Slobodan Milosevic was still resisting and, in fact, had stepped up the uh, allegedly the massacre of civilians, NATO generals suggested a ground war. But Clinton said no. He would keep it a war in the air, a humanitarian war from a distance. Bombing is always controversial, and the war was controversial. The Russians didn't like it very much. Various Balkan countries didn't like the war very much. Serbs certainly weren't happy that they were being bombed by NATO. But eventually, despite his defiance, Milosevic agreed, after negotiation with Finland and Russia, to give in. Clinton had compelled Yugoslavia to stop massacring its people without the loss of a single American soldier. The utter chaos and destruction that was felt in Kosovo and in parts of Serbia was not felt, of course, in the United States. President Clinton didn't encounter much opposition in the air war in Serbia. Of course, it only lasted from March to June of 1999. I am puzzled by the reaction I see in the run-up to uh, the assault on Libya now with some, I believe, uh, on the internet, uh, jumping to a conclusion. I've already heard statements about this being another Iraq. Uh, Dennis Kucinich, 
uh, liberal congressman, always known for extreme statements, already asking for impeachment of Obama. I find it puzzling, but not surprising. Americans don't really look back a lot at history, but they look back an awful lot at very recent history, particularly the last event. So, this event is now compared to Iraq or Afghanistan, the last wars, even though those wars haven't been fully resolved. There are questions as to why the president can use military force in this situation. Technically, the legality lies in his role as commander-in-chief to use the available forces of the United States. Now, at the time that the Constitution was written, there wasn't a true standing army. There was just the various militias of states, and an army could perhaps be founded when needed. There wasn't even a true navy uh, at that time. The legal authority, direct legal authority, would now lie in the War Powers Act, though every president and every president's legal counsel probably keeps a ready-to-go argument that that's unconstitutional. Both President Bush's in their invasions of Iraq stated that they would go to Congress, but didn't feel that they ultimately needed a congressional approval to act if they felt the situation was warranted. But they did go to Congress, and they did get approval for action. The current standard for approval of presidential action, especially after the Iraq and Afghanistan and the first Gulf War, seems to be a UN resolution. Now, we're a prominent member of the UN Security Council. Permanent members also include China and Russia, the UK and France. It is common, and about the best that we can ever get, for China and Russia to abstain if they want to allow us to do something. And that's what happened in this case. It allows the government of China and Russia to later attack the operation, which Russia has already done if they feel they, the operation's going too far. The new Republican Congress has been loath to criticize President Obama directly, though they are making a point of asking questions and asking for the president to explain the goals a little better. I don't see this as a giant historical uh, event. There are a couple of interesting points. One is that the United States is perhaps for the first time in its history at war in three different places at once, three different separate operations. Not, you know, I understand World War II, Spanish-American War had a number of fronts, but this is three different operations against, in effect, three different enemies. The fact that we are attacking the same leader that we tried to kill 24 years ago in the same country is uh, significant. That, uh, President Obama and President Reagan are engaging in a very similar operation. The fact that we are attacking a leader that had just semi-reconciled with the previous administration represents a change in policy between the two administrations. Gaddafi was seen as certainly not a very nice person and not a good guy, but when fighting al-Qaeda and some other enemies that we had, the Bush administration thought that it was a Good thing that Gaddafi was supporting the war on terror and wanted to open relations with the United States. That has dramatically changed, and that's a reversal from the last president. I also feel that the operation is historical 
in that the amount of support we're getting from various uh, nations and nations who had criticized operations like this in the past. But the actual event, the actual attack that's going on, at least in the beginnings here, to me, it's not all that historically significant, especially while we have troops on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan and have had them there for quite a long time. This I put more in the category of a small strike, small war, Clintonian type uh, action. I just think, politically speaking, that President Obama is always going to have trouble being a war president, how that's perceived politically. And this is because more than even President Clinton, who, although he was a Democrat, and although he was seen as a domestic president, had sort of created a moderate image. President Obama won the election, really, particularly the primary of 2007 and 2008, because of the Iraq war. And I think the reason that he was able to beat Hillary Clinton in the primary election is that a significant amount of Democrats didn't feel comfortable with Hillary Clinton, but the thing that put him over the top, I believe, was Clinton's position on the Iraq war, and President Obama at least was on record as opposing it. By the time he got into office, the entire reason for his campaign had slipped away a bit because President Bush had already been withdrawing troops from Iraq and setting plans in place to do so. In fact, the surge and then the scale down of troops in Iraq had denied President Obama from having that great moment, uh, say, that President Eisenhower had when he was elected and was able to go to Korea and then return troops home from Korea. That was already in place when President Obama got there. Now we have a president who was elected ostensibly as an anti-war candidate. I know that was not the only thing the election was about. It wasn't even the significant issue of the election, the economy was, but ostensibly as an anti-war candidate, you know, he's going to have a little trouble being a war president from both sides. Republicans won't trust him, but his own Democratic supporters are continuously going to be asking, how come this president that we thought was different got us into the war? There'll be a small group in the middle, of course, that are going to support the action, and how large he can make that group will determine his support. Another important factor with the Libyan operation is the change in government in France and in the UK. In France, you have a Sarkozy, the president who is a lot more conservative than Francois Mitterrand was in the 1980s when France did not allow us to use their country for flyover, which incidentally, the same year, France would end up bombing uh, Libyan troops as well when they refused to get out of Chad and the French had been an ally of the Chad government. So they ended up with Gaddafi troubles of their own. In the UK, you have David Cameron, who's in a coalition government and is eager to show his credentials as a war prime minister uh, to show that he can run the country. They're having a number of troubles in the coalition government in England, and they're having to make massive cuts in social programs It's not popular with many in the UK. The Labour Party, which was thrown out of office, was showing some good results in opinion polls and won a by-election. I believe these two leaders, in their opinion, was a significant force in President Obama's decision to act here. President Obama, given the fact that the United States has two wars going on, is eager to get into the background on this one. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.